This is the Rogue Insider Podcast, episode one. Uh, we're going to be dealing with Peter Sloterdijk today, my my personal favourite philosopher. I'm V, this is W, do you want to say hello? No, hello everyone, I'm W and that's V. So, uh, to set this up, um, I read uh, Peter Sloterdijk's Spheres trilogy. Uh, w hasn't read this, but we've um, had conversations about it previously. Um, to come clean right off the bat, the purpose of this podcast is my attempt to sell to you the importance of Peter Sloterdijk. I think that the Anglosphere is doing itself a disservice by not paying enough attention to uh, this philosophy. Now, um, a lot of Peter Sloterdijk's work has been translated into English, so you don't need to learn German to uh, do this German philosophy. Um, is there any introductory notes that you want to make, W, before I move into the introduction? Uh, yes, right. Well, I wanted to identify Sloterdijk's goal just mm-hmm. as, a, as a framing for the exploration of his material. And I've grabbed from somebody's critique of his critiques <laughs> that they're summarizing his goal as restating our basic quandaries in revelatory new language. Hmm. Mm. So it looks like we're addressing quandaries today. You want to lead us in? Sure. So I suspect that the reason why um, Sloterdijk is understudied in the West is not because he's not easy, to be clear. He's not easy. But partly, but A, just the Anglosphere is inwards facing, right? Um, and... The other reason I think is that it's impossible to sum up what Sloterdijk thinks. His uh, books are not, uh, they're not written in a way where a single um, proposition is examined and then attempted to be proved or disproved and then the outcomes of that put forward. His books take the form more like collections of essays. So each chapter is an essay about a subject and slowly as you build uh, essay on essay you kind of build towards some sort of understanding overall whilst never quite arriving at a conclusion and it's this failure to sum it up that I think makes it difficult because when someone asks you oh sort of like I've heard of him you know what's it about then you immediately hit a brick wall because <laughs> a you can't remember all of the chapters that go into this book and um, each of the understandings of the, uh, that each chapter develops are literally, uh, literarily and philosophically dense enough that it already takes enough time to try and just set it up. Could you try and articulate or summarise a trajectory? Or do they vary across series of treatises? Well, okay, so the Globes trilogy is about two and a half thousand pages all up across the three books. Um and the trajectory is from the inside to the outside. So the first book, Bubbles, is more intrapersonal and interpersonal. It starts with a consideration of uh, the relationship of the fetus to the placenta and uh, the womb, and then mm. grows outwards into you know, the cave as this place where the family is, and then the house as the ersatz cave, and then from outwards to there... And, um, it starts to move into the city and then globes is um, addresses globalization a fair amount and so it moves from 10,000 years ago that as the sort of starting point of the trend towards globalization um, and plots the trend of western history forward through time to the present and the way that the sphere has operated as a conceptual device in the history of Western philosophical thought, and also outwards as a kind of um, as the the city state turned into uh, an empire, and the assumptions underlying empire expand outwards into the world. And then the third book, Foams, deals with um, what he calls the piercing of the sphere, where the larger kind of sphere that the idea that a society could have a single Weltanschwung uh, 
Weltanschauung, is that the word? A kind of worldview that that pops and breaks into lots of these little parts that are all responsible for their own little bits. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Hmm. So or, that, that seems to me that there's, there, like you were saying, from the inner to the outer, there's a scalar progression, and then it's sort of dipping into extra scalar. Yeah. A, you could say a that. Directional. Yeah. Well, you could say that if to the degree that globalization starts with one person and another person having a relationship and ends with um, relationship that a, a, a globe a global relationship that is the size of the entire world and involves everybody in it and then that's the end point and now we're after that point that is where foams is operating a multi-scalar assessment of our relational matrices yeah he's looking back on on it as an event okay From... so that's one series of books <laughs> yeah and right. that's and that's Is what that i want to deal with today. across other books okay that's the one we're addressing yeah um, any any idea of the other ones i've heard that already oh, i've got something open excuse me yeah um do mustain there are other and in... other books that you've covered from him and i've heard referred uh, verticality as issues is addressing cynicism um, the nature of religion there's other topics do they overlap into the spheres trilogy so that we can address purely that because um, this is hailed as the magnum opus isn't it the spheres yeah it is it is regarded as his kind of uh, largest and most complete work um i don't think that his other works are less complete frankly but in terms of his uh his greatest achievement so far i don't think that's too far from the truth but yeah he also wrote you must change your life which i've read which is really good and that deals with issues that you were talking about verticality cynicism and religion and these sorts of things his in fact his work that he came to prominence with the critique of cynical reason um is a sort of personal development of the relationship to cynicism inside the philosophical sphere that he was operating in at that time and looking at back at the failures of the social movements of the 60s and 70s um and he's written other books as well but i'm going to try and restrict myself to speaking about right. the spheres trilogy because i mean this is already too much to deal with right and if you're going to address um essentially it's post-nietzschean absolutely it is attitudes. it absolutely is um, okay, well, Peter's... it's too much for... I don't want to do Nietzsche right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter Sloterdijk is an incredibly literary and deeply philosophical thinker across a range of subjects. So his, his so he absolutely deals with Nietzsche in, a, uh, in multiple ways across the books. Um, but you could say the same thing for uh, Heidegger or Kant, right? There's a, it's all in there. Um so stylistically, his, it's important to note that he's an exaggerator. He makes his points by saying something that is so provocative that you have to discover what about it provokes you and dismiss those. And then once you've done that, you've arrived at the point which he was trying to make. Like the Ubermensch is a dangerous topic for a German to bring up. Abs Superman. Absolutely. In fact, he got into a lot of trouble for using the German word selection. Um which has was sort of verboten you know you know you weren't allowed to use that um so it, could we regard that as a provocation i don't know if he intended it that way but it definitely did provoke and um the way that he used it i think was completely ethical um because he was just saying look technology is coming to the point that is so good that it, that it is so good that at some point we're going to arrive at a point where people are not going to have the choice to not be in a position of having an influence on the way that their children come into the world not only postnatally but prenatally as well and you have to confront that fact now obviously in the german context any talk of selection is, is extremely heightened sensitivity and rightly so but um what else can we say about him he has a sense of humor which I really enjoy. Some of the parts in this series just brought me to absolute tears of laughter. It was, it's great. Um, and the, his, he's also literarily informed, I think I've said that. Uh, the translator, Weiland Hoban, has done really excellent work. I don't speak German, so I can't confirm the um, 
the essence of the translation but nothing about it makes me suspect that it's inaccurate and the in terms of the readability the difficulty comes from Sloterdijk's ideas not from translation issues right yeah. in which case I'm going to be addressing the material that you're sharing with us right. today as if it is a technology purposed for the informing of how we address technology yeah absolutely um Sloterdijk doesn't shy away from the technical or from techni at all he's he's deeply involved in that question in fact um he, at one moment he goes into a um excursus about the space station as the ideal way to examine um human life at, inside the technical world um so what else can we say Sloterdijk uh, has been said to do for space what Heidegger did for time it's said that Heidegger invites us to take time seriously and I would say it's accurate to say that Sloterdijk invites us to take space seriously so he deals with um, architecture because he's the he was the rector at Karlsruhe University of Art and Design which is, has a distinguished architecture school in it um, uh, geometry he takes seriously so all of the space and spatiality informs this uh, approach um, mm, well i'm thinking about the threat of time and in, in that i as an individual i'm certainly threatened by time and i inevitably face death mm -hmm. and traditionally certainly in western culture and i think it's unanimous i would find unanimity amongst all other cultures where they see that there is some form of theory or religion or god that saves us or offers salvation to the inevitability of death mm. but obviously this this fringes on post-nietzschism absolutely immediately well, yeah and we're looking at space what saves us from the limitlessness of space and that is the technology that allows us to fill it that's right in fact one of the parts of um globes that really struck me is the moment of transition from the medieval uh, universe in which a series of nested spheres we are that we are within are quite closely and densely packed together so that we can feel the heat of hell and the light of heaven onto this kind of uh, medium world in which we live um, and everything is bundled and on the outside is God and that is the kind of final limit of the universe and it's all quite closely packed and you can see the movement of the spheres and the travelers in the sky these you know planets and stars and things um the moment of realization of going wait a second astronomically speaking it's very clear to us that the distances that we've assumed are much bigger and realizing that there is an outside in which the outside limit can't be found as a as a moment of terror mm. yeah there's no mechanism from within space in which we can measure outside of space that's right well, well, currently, with our current binding of what and definitions of what space is. Mm. So let me go. Okay, we have to roll it back. But before we continue that, before you persist, sorry, I yep. would love to give you threads, but might need to roll it back and just identify the foundational metaphor that is the sphere. Yeah, because that's when a great idea. most of us consider a sphere or a circle, what have we got? So yeah one of the things i hope to do in this podcast is identify some of the core concepts that sloterdijk uses so that when you if you choose to uh, dive into these books you will be less stranded than i was <laughs> and obviously the core concept <laughs> is the sphere now this is not a book about spheres right the sphere is not the subject of the books it is the theme so obviously for Sloterdijk, spheres are a philosophically dense concept. He says, and I quote, sphere theory begins as a psychology of inner spatial formation from biune correspondences. So it starts in a place where, um, and this is one of the points that he makes, is that being, capital B being, is being <laughs> with, that the beginning is already a relationship. So in a sense, the entire Spheres project is to explicate, to reveal, in Heidegger's sense, to pour out what's in sight, right? To find the knots of 
what is concealing and loosen those knots so that we can examine what's inside it. So we can find new fields of potential examination within it on the meaning of spheres. And naturally, there's always correspondences and inferences that can be drawn between and across spheres, right? a conjunction of the spheres. So let me give you an example. In the first 100 pages of Bubbles, spheres, uh, Slotterdike uses spheres in the following ways. Microspheres, macrospheres, soap bubbles as harbors of fragility, the pre-Copernican cosmos as the nested spheres of the planets and the sidereal sphere of the stars, the celestial dome of the sky, locations where people are as an always projected sphere, humans as sphere projecting animals, being, as, being in the world as being in spheres, spheres as people relating to each other, the fragile sphere is the host of the first primal catastrophe. Eden is the sphere of paradise. The family as a sort of caring bell that encloses. The womb is a sphere that contains placenta and child. God and the world as an inclusive orb. And he quotes Nicholas of Cusa here. The whole of theology is said to be circular. Klein bottles. And the globe as the planet the terrestrial sphere, the map, and the concept of the world. Right, so all of that is packed into the first 100 pages, and it only goes outwards from there. <clears throat> Let's choose one of them. Can I choose one? Uh, okay. Sure. Um, it seems foundational. Um, it's spheres as relation. I've already commented earlier when mm. you dropped that word. I echoed it to you. Uh, spheres as relationships as relational. Um, I want to explore that. Initially, it strikes me as, sure, there's the the range of my ability to relate to other people, the sphere of my relations to others. But then of course there's the overlap of spheres and immediately I've got this image metaphor, a functional metaphor, I don't know how complete it is, this is why I want to explore it, sure. of my sphere of relationships overlapping with your sphere of relationships and where they where they meet and change and how they are different because they are distinct as, as individuals. Mm. Um, but there's definitely a foam forming, so is mm. that what he's identified. Um, yes. Foams has a specific... Yes, and. Co yes, and. Uh, foams <laughs> has a specific meaning, right? So, okay. Slotterdijk uses foams to mean the world that exists after the time of the project of globalization has come to an end because it has collapsed. Now, that is not the only use in foam, but we need to establish that that's the primary use of the metaphor of foams. And keep in mind that he's that using... by me again. Foams is the world, the so social world that exists after the project of globalization collapses because we arrive at a point where there's one sphere, the entire world. The global sphere. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. and that has dissipated. That, oh, no. that project has ended. The project but of there's saying, still plenty of foaming agent and people it, are used to living inside of uh, contiguous sort of bubble structures. Exactly right. So let's say you uh, go to watch a sports game. There's a sphere of the social <laughs> world of all of the people that are there to watch that sports game at that amphitheater or arena or whatever it is that you're at, and then it dissipates again. So the foam is not a, a solid thing. It's a constantly foaming thing. So... And then suppose you go to a dog show and there's lots of dogs running around and you're in the social world of people who are interested in dog shows. They all come together in the city and then they all dissipate again. So you end up with all of these constant arriving and dissipating spheres. And inside that you've got, you know, the sphere of your business that you work in and, you know, whatever your job is, the sphere of your family, you know, the tiny little sphere of you inside your car. Suppose you live in an apartment there's lots of little spheres all there. These are the foams, right? And where does all of that go back to? Slotterdyke says that the point at which the first sphere, or the first kind of co-relationship arises is before consciousness arises in the fetal infant inside the womb. You Placenta. All, yeah, you already have a the relationship with the placenta and the placenta is shaping the internal world of the child even prior to the arrival of consciousness so this is not a matter Beautiful. of 
of you know your mind and your brain and what you think about things this is a matter of even before you you if you think of yourself as only your brain which i hope that is not the case um you're already in a in a co-relationship and as you are born into the world you leave the placenta behind and Mm -hmm. your mother becomes your ersatz placenta because all of the reliability and nutrition and the provision that occurs for the fetus is transferred onto the mother right the the relation the relationship of the fetus to the placenta is the relationship of the baby to the mother and the relationship of the person in exactly the same way as the relationship to the society (laughs) <laughs> I've never thought of my own mother as a poor substitute for a placenta before. <laughs> well, I, I, to be clear, I, neither I nor Slotterdike are saying she's a poor substitute, only that she's not the first in line. Okay, and also she built that's a placenta. Right. So, not, so honour to all mothers. Okay. Honour to yeah, all mothers. That's yeah. right, yeah. of course. Yeah. Um, and, so the, and so it's this series of multiplying mutualistic relationships that come into the world. And also I should make a point that using the word society is not really is not really relevant to uh, Sloterdijk's philosophy he says sociology has two explanations for a society one is contractualism and the other one is organicism and both of them are provably false with minimal effort so that's part of the reason why the spheres project came into being is to try to deal with the failures of sociology or thinking about societies so anytime i use the term society it, it's an anachronism in uh, slaughterdike's philosophy what about the trajectories of society because we have this foundational relationship um from this spheres analogy i mean it's it, seems like it's so adequate it's almost real and no longer needed to be called an analogy but um, the original relationship being one of perfect giving and uh, I'm not even sure it's symbiotic because it seems that the placenta nourishes as the other in both a biological and spiritual as he's identifying Mm. relational way Um, are we in a way it's hinting at I mean I haven't read this but I'm gathering that there is a desire in me, and I imagine in others, to try and find a harmony of relationship that reflects that original perfection. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine so, right? Uh, It seems like an innate trajectory of biology. It's so nurturing and nourishing and fosters potential, and you can see that echoed in the aspirations of man yeah and what and animal yeah well the fact that we think of loneliness as a negative thing is is all of the evidence that we need to show that humanity is inside this what peter sloterdijk would call the hot house of our closeness relationships right lots of warmth it's sort of the fecundity and moistness of the hot house is the uh, sort of emotional relations that we have to each other you know and all, all of that is present in the in the good uh relationship so <laughs> so there's a nice nice room for fantasies about hot houses there oh he, there's so much stuff about hot houses and glass houses in Slotterdijk. i love it he he goes into a whole technological excursus but i won't deal with that just now all right so that's yeah. that's one of the core concepts is the sphere um so space topology geometry and architecture and spatiality let me give you a a sort of a little quote from him from uh, um, geometry and the monstrous if one had to pinpoint the dominant motif in the metaphysical era of european thought in a single word it could only be globalization the affair between occidental reason and the world whole unfolded and exhausted itself and the sign of the geometrically perfect round form which we still label with the greek sphere and even more widely with the roman globe it was the early european metaphysicians mathematicians and cosmologists 
who forced onto mortals their fateful new definition, orb-creating and orb-inhabiting animals. Globalization began as the geometrization of the immeasurable. So it seems like an overblown way to say when we explored the world, we found limits to it and that it had a round shape. Mm. He, but then again, in doing so, it leaves it open for analogy. Yeah, I, I imagine a philosopher trying to convince somebody that the world is round and struggling to do so early on, right? <laughs> yeah, you, yeah you, right. you live even on a now, sphere even now I've had troubles in my local town people telling me about this flat earth and <laughs> hey it's still play. a live subject right it turns out you know, almost universally they'd uh, taken too many drugs discovered mm. their inner demons hallucinated them in such a terrifying fashion that the only way they could address it was with a story that allowed them to perceive a great evil that they were righteously fighting against and it just so happens that that great evil is uh, convincing us all this around earth but amazing amazing right. <laughs> yeah um okay so another aspect of uh peter sodadike's style is that he takes art seriously now one of the things that sodadike has been praised for is the excellence of his selections of compelling images that fill the spheres trilogy books and he uses discussion mm. of art pieces in a way that will be familiar for readers of art history. So nice. He, yeah, so he, the, the, a lot of the time he's using artworks. Um, so um, Sphere starts with a discussion of various artworks. Uh, Mosaic from the Seven Philosophers from Torah Annunziata, which is a fresco in the house of the Vesei in Pompeii, uh, Goethe's Altar of Good Fortune, an image from Wenzel Jamnitz's Pix, Pis, uh, Perspectiva Corporum Regularium from 1568, Albrecht Dürer's Nemesis, The Great Fortune from 1502, Bartolomeu Esteban Perez Murillo's St. Francis Embracing the Crucified Christ in 1668, various ancient coins, uh, Piranesi's The Roman Circus in 1756 and the first or second century Farnese Atlas which is currently in the Museo Nacional all um, of which I want to see right now oh they are so fantastic beautiful yeah they're, oh, great. Uh, they really are amazing works and you did you personally touch on art history yourself um I I have an interest in art history um right. yeah as a hobbyist um in particular like uh Baroque uh, works they're really fantastic um so his the way that he uses it uh, the way that he uses art is not just as um example of talking about globes like for example when he talks about the farnese atlas which is this globe that is being held up um by uh, what's the name of the giant that carries the world atlas it is atlas isn't it um so he uses it not just as an example, but also as, as evidence of the fact that the people were taking these concepts seriously at the times that these artworks were produced. So when he tracks the use of the sphere as a philosophical concept through the development of Western thought, you can see how it expressed itself in these artworks. Okay. That's um, it's a lot of potential in the application and using the historical certainly very appealing makes me want to see the art and understand his interpretation because of the potential for the scalar interpretation yeah like like the um the micro to the macro to the extra or supra or whatever it is the relational the sociological mm. so uh, what was that um, if i grab something here from one person's critique of his work um, about the mental and spiritual technology that he's developing mm -hmm. uh, with the reconfiguration uh, using metaphors uh, from science. Mm. So reconfiguration, uh, re reconfiguring, sorry, the uh, perceived world 
um, and as if the reconfiguration modality is a spiritual technology and it utilizes sort of science references so it's as if it's a uh, a non-religious and almost a non-offensive non-religion but how would you say oh, free of anti-religious sentiment mm. yeah um, do you have any in mind that stick out like any science fields that he's using um i think it's it is fair to say that um Sloterdijk does use some scientific principles as metaphors, but more oftenly he just uses the raw science, right? What you mean, like um, hothouses, climate? Uh, yeah, so he de so he develops um, the concept of uh, hothouses in a philosophical way, and you and does use them as metaphors, but then he also says, look. Uh, what was the original purpose of a lot of hothouses was for the scientific collection of um, plants and animals uh, from non-European climates um, to survive inside European climates, right? Like that was, mm. that's just a raw scientific fact that that is where they began. So there's nothing, there's nothing anti-scientific in it but also I don't think there's anything anti-religious in it either. He takes seriously thinkers who deal with God and uh, and because of the um, incredible influence of Christianity in the Western tradition. Uh, again and again, he brings up artworks that are... Uh, what's the one that I mentioned earlier? St. Francis Embracing the Crucified Christ, for example, by Murillo, right? Um... He, I'm going to leave that aside because in, he goes into that in You Must Change Your Life. The opening for You Must Change Your Life uh, is the kind of uh, more deep form of that. So if you're interested in that subject, that's the place to go for it. Well, I mean, I'd have a keen interest in the value. I mean, I've found as I age that I'm on the spectrum, not in terms of mental disorder, but uh, in terms of conservatism, and that I'm finding myself willing to engage with traditions, uh, yeah. even though I may not understand them, simply because as I age, I'm finding I'm starting to understand the value in why, or basically maybe there's an analogy or metaphor in the ritualized or practiced traditions. I'm mm -hmm. finding that my willingness to engage with them and support their existence is counter to my adolescent attitude of, I can reinvent it all, it's all here now, why do I need this? I don't understand it, so I'm not gonna do it. Yep. And now I'm finding I'm gonna do it and I bet I'm gonna come to understand it. And if I don't, then, oh well, you know, chances are there's something of value and, and I'll let uh, history and the nature of it having survived over time be uh, sort of indicating its value. Mm. and. And that's making me a conservative in a way. Yep. Um, and as such, I'm looking at Christian tradition and public speakers on the issue. I'm finding fascinating, uh, developing my own, how would I say, becoming my own pope in a way. I'm developing an atheist Christianity and forming my own religious values. I mean, it might be atheist in a spoken word because I certainly find myself most comfortable uh, speaking in the materialistic frame. Um, but certainly my internal dialogue may have other, how would you say, embellishments. Mm. Um, so I would be interested in Sloterdijk's take on the value of traditional religion and its contribution to our state, because I'm wondering, as I become more conservative and as I see value in the culture that has built or has allowed for, um, how would I say, a, a sphere that en enables certain styles of phoning or subspheres, or essentially conditions like a hothouse, like the, the fecundity of the biology in a hothouse. There's a certain type of life that can exist within this sphere, and I'm wondering what it is that you find in the different religions, and what it is that can be extracted, and how can we preserve that, given that we are in, it seems like, an unstoppably post-religious age? Mm. Well, it's a big question, eh? I mean, is it addressed at all in his books? Am I am I going to find that if I'm looking into them? Um, 
maybe so let me give you you know what okay let's do you must change your life all right okay this is the this is the first paragraph of uh the introduction to you must change your life and it's quite a lengthy quotation so i hope i don't bear down on your patience too much <laughs> please a specter is haunting the western world the specter of religion all over the country we hear that after an extended extended absence it has now returned and is among the people of the modern world and that one would do well to reckon seriously with its renewed presence Unlike the spectre of communism, which, when its manifesto appeared in 1848, was not a returnee, but a novelty among imminent threats, the present case does full justice to its revenant nature. Whether it comforts or threatens, whether it greets us as a benevolent spirit or is feared as an irrational shadow of mankind, its appearance, indeed the mere announcement of, thereof, commands respect as far as the eye can see. If one passes over the summer offensive of the godless in 2007, to which we owe two of the most superficial screeds in recent intellectual history, those of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the forces of old Europe have combined for a pompous welcome celebration for a gathering of unequal guests. The Pope and the Islamic scholars, the American presidents and the new rulers of the Kremlin, all the Metternichs and Guizots of our time, the French curators, and the German sociologists. This attempt to restore to religion its attested rights involves the enforcement of a protocol which demands of the newly converted and fascinated that they confess to their previous errors of judgment. As in the first days of the first Merovingian, who pledged allegiance to the cross because of a victorious battle, today's children of the banalized enlightenment are likewise meant to burn what they worshipped and worship what they burned. Mm. so so yes <laughs> he strikes yeah. exactly the root of that question and let me be clear without religion either pagan or christian there is no realm of western thought is that book written before or after spheres uh i believe you must change your life is written after um okay. there's also the issue of translation yeah, so You Must Change Your Life was published in 2009 in German as Du Must Ein Leben Enden. Uh, so this was 2011, wasn't it? No, much earlier. Oh. Yeah, uh, it was published around the millennium, I believe. Okay. Yeah, uh, let me just double check that. Yeah, so the first in the Spheres trilogy was published in 1998 in German. well so yes so here's another core concept for you immunity so okay well immunity right so we're looking at, we're looking at one of these oh, immunological metaphors absolutely so a key metaphor so, in, okay. in the spheres trilogy is immunity or immunism or co-immunism so anywhere where there is a boundary and and spheres are boundaries um it, it operates uh, like a filter, not a word that Sloterdijk uses, I think, but um, like the the point of a boundary is to is to enforce uh, this side and a that side. So that is the sense in which uh, immunism occurs. There's, that's where the immunity is. So immunology is the study of uh, the hows and whys and wherefores of these boundaries. So the first kind of or and sorry not the first and early uh immunism is uh the tribe saying these are the people that are within our tribe and those are the people who are outside our tribe and you know we need to support and protect these ones and impinge on and invade those ones and then later on that psychic technology of the boundary manifests itself in the physical world as the city wall right Oh, nice. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so Ur and Uruk have the very first, these very first major empire cities have these immense city walls, which both project um, outwards as a sort of form of imposition, 
but also comfort inwards as a form of um, of paternal embrace, right? Um, nice. Yeah. So let me give you another quote. This is from page 272. Uh, the proof of God's existence was given for ordinary observers wherever and for however long the wall stands. This affected the increase in the rational factor in later conceptions of the world, as God would henceforth be imagined as the builder of all builders and the artisan of all artisans. A lucid producer God of this kind offered people a chance to perceive themselves in a new light. They must have felt that a royal engineer or divine ceramicist had also produced them, and that they belonged to him more intimately than to their own mothers. They familiarised themselves with the notion that they ultimately came more from a workshop than a maternal cave. And as this sort of immune uh, group expands outwards, you end up eventually at the point of nations, right? And then even, you yeah. could say, the, the post-national um, entities like the European Union are manifestations of this original immunity. And then when the nations lose the capacity to police their own boundary, that's where they've turned into, turned into foams. Okay. Right. Yeah. There's These a... examples are testimony to the value and validity of the overarching metaphorical system of spheres and mm. foams. So I like that. Mm. Is, a, um, is the the tomes, these, was it 2,000 pages, um, is it delivered uh, with chapter segments that are addressing, this is a key metaphor and here's how the... Um, if I, you know, it seems a bit brutish to summarize it this way. Uh, this is how the sphere and foam analogy fits this scale. And on these scales, it's relevant, or on all scales, it's relevant. Is it essentially an exploration of the relevancy of this new mode of comprehension? I, because a lot of what you say, it just it keeps ringing bells of truth. Mm. Like, I'm not going to go, that's literally true. In as much as I'm going to say, there's a big bell that goes ding, ding, ding. That works. Yeah. That pattern fits. My my pattern recognition systems are going. Oh, I identify that 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 follows. Um, yeah. So I don't think that uh, Sloterdijk is ever. Um, he's really in a mode of trying to convince. It's much more often that he takes this attitude of um, here's a concept what happens if we open it up and look inside it and also he, he really lays out his project in simplistic terms he, his, he, he, ne he never goes let's understand this and then this and then this and those then it will become clear to us that this is the result of that my, and that's part of the reason why I have such difficulty trying to explain what it is that I've learned from Peter Sloterdijk is that um, to the degree that when a person learns a concept it tends to be quite simple and then as you develop the concept it becomes much more textured and highly coloured and uh, it opens up new grounds for exploration it's also difficult to explain what it is or why it is that way so when that happens well, over and over and over and over again on domains that are either in the same place or related to each other or have these kind of hyper-networked relationships in a metaphorical and literal and emotional ways, that's the difficulty to explain. So in that sense, Peter Soderdijk has... <laughs> in some sense not pioneered any new concepts <laughs> no that's that's completely false Soderdijk says that the philosopher's primary responsibility is to pioneer new concepts it strikes me as if it's a human art in the exploration of philosophy rather than some sort of mathematical uh, Aristotelian uh, a treatise some 
approach to um, labeling the structure in a cold way that strips away the human relation. It's as if it's as if he's using a human experience of an artistic rendering of the comprehension of how we can restate our basic quandaries mm. in a new language. Um, it's humanized with art. Yeah. And so you're saying that sometimes you cry, sometimes you laugh, um, you're forever astonished and completely um, perplexed at times. Yeah, absolutely. It's extremely literary. Not just informed by literature, but the performance itself is is in the literary mode. Right. Have you found it revelatory yourself? Do you uh, find yourself applying? Yeah, absolutely. I I can no longer see the world as I once saw it. The, my, and uh, my what part of the world are you focusing on, though? I mean, you're um you're a geopoliticist, <laughs> is that right? <laughs> yeah. I so ge- geopolitics and uh, strategy are my kind of natural home spheres, and I got into this from my dissatisfaction. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you don't mind me talking about myself a little, it mm. feels indulgent. But anyway, the reason why I got into Peter Zolodyk is f- specifically because at the time that I was focused on globalization, I was extremely dissatisfied with the shallowness with which um, the concept of globalization was being treated in international relations. And, uh, and that when I was in the bookstore and found globes lying there, and it says on the back... Uh, this is a philosophical development of the concept of geopolitics, of uh, globalization. I thought, fantastic, here's the answer to my problems. I'm going to go get into this. Now, nice. I, I haven't committed the project of returning to uh, IR and saying, here's what I've learned yet, though that may happen at some point. But that was IR being point. international relations rather than industrial? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, so... That was my well. Currently, with your experience in international relations, uh, was there is there like a just off the top of my head? I mean, remember something like a, a fourfold dimensional analysis or like a five a five theory system by which you analyze uh, international relations? Is that correct? There is some um, in realism. Um, there's a well in a offensive realism as put forward by Mearsheimer. There's a three propositional uh, approach which just says um, you can't verify intentions. All states have some uh, offensive capacity. Um, therefore, all states need to have uh, be wary of each other and that essentially, uh, because there is no uh, central authority, therefore all states are in competition with each other and then do with that information what you will. And so how is that improved upon by... The complexity of the sphere system the new language uh it's not but not not all international relations theorists are uh offensive realists realists okay yeah so uh to the degree that if you accept that the way that people think about the world has an impact on geopolitics then uh globalization is really important to the degree that you think that economic patterns have an impact on international relations then globalization is really important so right i'm going to need to factor for the preservation of the integrity of of the boundary to my nation yeah um i'm going to need to factor in what the consequence of the the globe foaming into into smaller states or the collapse of the what did you say the globalization yeah um, may it may fail what is it going to do what's his concern what's your concern in that regard well, <laughs> war is my concern. Mm, mine too. Yeah. Right. Like, what What are the potential outcomes from the fact that uh, for 150, 200 years, there was a direct overlap between nation and state, and that created a a very hard and pleased sphere. Now that that is in, or at least looks like it's going away, I don't don't necessarily believe that it's going away, and that's 
part of the complexity of the problem. How do you deal with the fact that uh, it looks like we're in a post-globalization era? Is that a return to previous nationalisms? Or is that inventing new nationalisms? Or are the sphere of whatever the nation is going to be replaced by something else? Is the boundaries that nations used to place being um, penetrated? Is that what are the outcomes of that? How and how are states going to respond to the fact that national boundaries um, are either being overcome or not being placed in the way that they used to? It blossoms out into a huge number of complex problems. Oh my god! Yes, yeah. the expense of renegotiation. I Absolutely. come at things because I'm biased by my own studies in commerce and marketing in particular, right? And market theory, which we'll cover in another podcast. We should definitely but need to do really... something about uh, economy and war. But I interrupted. Carry on, please. Right. Um, yeah, you did break my flow there. Um, but if we look at what the cost is of rebranding, you can straight away see, okay, well, it's renegotiations of boundaries and you go straight into the market as war. You go straight into the overlap between your concern for the shift of globalization into potentially, uh, what are you saying, like nationalist states or maybe the collapse of states or the redefining of borders. Well, when have you ever heard of the redefinition of state borders without violence? I mean, there must be a few cases when it's implied threats of violence. I mean, exactly. Oh, God. Okay, right. <laughs> so, so it's good to have a new language to address it then to help inform those who are managing the boundaries of our state so that they can see it coming and can factor this. Well, this is... Is that where you're coming from with the value of the book? And when you're wandering yes. through this library and you find it, oh, good, this gives me information that I can use to help inform my IR strategy. Yeah, well, this is exactly my frustration. Okay. IR strategy is failing to address a crucial issue of our time, and the solutions are written down right here, and they are not being paid attention to. Hence my attempt to proselytize this approach to people not because I'm arrogant enough to believe that I'm capable of saying this is correct and you should learn it, but rather to invite other people to assess it and figure out where the strengths and weaknesses are and what can be applied in a practical sense. So he's a, a German public yep. philosopher. He's a German public, public intellectual. And in fact, a public intellectual in a way that in the Anglosphere is foreign to us because he ran a TV show for like 10 years on philosophy, something that I can't imagine occurring in my nation. Well, surely that's had a significant positive influence on the nation that he's trying to assist. Well, you would think that, but as far as I'm aware, uh, the German self-concept is already one in which pride in the sophistication of the philosophical tradition is already completely embedded. So it's more a result than a cause in that respect right so it's so the degree to which he's going to affect change and his state's ability to adjust to uh, a reshuffling of boundary definitions yeah um is negligible because the state's already structured or the the, the consciousness of the people is already in such a form that it innately engages in such a way well I don't know if I would go that though go that far. I would say that I don't think that there's any German who's surprised that a philosopher is a star in some sense. Um, but I do think that um, Sloterdijk's provocations do have something that is useful as a contribution to Germany. One of the <laughs> one of his provocations was saying that. The German state is one of, uh, what did he call it? A lethargocracy. A, a, a state that is defined by its lethargy, in which oh my God. <laughs> the, the, the party that does the least is the one who is most promoted, and that the entire German system is one in which uh, the promotion of non-action is the central kind of, if, if I've understood him correctly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, they've got a terrible history of, of extreme action. So, Yeah, you can see why there'd be a certain amount of, uh, what do you call it, caution. Um, but that, our previous discussion that we were just having about the internal, uh, uh, about uh, immunity and how that descends 
or or how that operates in the world of the spheres leads me on to another core concept which is the air now the medium in which the foams exist exactly right but don't leave a head so slotocyte uses an extended metaphor of yeah (laughs) of the air as the internal world of these spheres right so to the sense the internal world yeah sorry inside the sphere is air as well as out uh the air no the air is only inside the world uh, only inside the sphere right so so when if we imagine a child blowing a soap bubble the the sphere is inflated now when a sphere is inflated in the sense that we mean it of this kind of policed boundary of a uh, internal social world what is what is the air that is inflating that right if people are part of a self-hypnotizing process of cultural production reproduction and re-self-fascination then the major collective cultural product is the internal air of these cultural spheres does that make sense sure but you're asking me what the air is and the only word i can think of is righteousness well i i think that it's indisputable that in the age of empire righteousness was absolutely an aspect of the re uh the reproduction of these cultural spheres right without the justification for the inflation it wouldn't have been occurring right yep. well i'm mean, even in my own life am i going to do this today what kind of how much sugar do i want in my coffee <laughs> i feel quite righteous about getting you know getting that particular yeah so i think that is a crucial aspect of it and but i interpret the air as being like a kind of cultural production and the sort of refascination and uh, Peter Soderdyke uses this metaphor of the air over and over again. In fact, he ends the Globes um, book with this quite with this concept that is uh, with a statement that is extremely hard to pass unless you're familiar with the rest of it. Where he says that, um, how does it go? It's a statement about the air. Uh, yes here he says air conditioning will establish itself as the main space political theme of the coming era so, space political yep so in terms of the sort of embodied in the world spatial kind of architectural aspect of politics the capacity for people to produce culture and condition the air in which they live is going to be critical he says and that metaphor uh, so is extended into the literal sense in terms of climate change right we need to extend Mm -hmm. we need to have some uh, there's something relevant there Um, but also like in a literal sense like anyone any person that works in a large building is dwelling inside an air-conditioned space and in this sense, so air conditioned literally and also metaphorically. Well, how many other layers of truth are there? If I'm understanding the literal, the symbolic and metaphorical, uh, the esoteric and the mystic. Is he covering the esoteric? He is, isn't he? He's looking at art history. He's, he definitely deals with the symbolic. Um, my understanding of esoteric is it's like elite teachings so i suppose in the sense that philosophic philosophy is a um luxury consumer good you could say it's esoteric sure well not to be confused with erudite i mean he's clearly erudite clearly erudite and that he's heavily studied and knows his material well absolutely um okay so perhaps it's not relevant when delivering material for the mass it's more important to focus on um, a new language with metaphors and analogies and um, sort of a transcendent capacity to address the literal mm. nice our basic quandaries now what do you have as, as a basic quandary V? what's a basic quandary of yours 
Oh. I mean, feel free to return the question, but well, the... the idea being we can apply the, his system mm. to addressing it or developing a new language for it. Well, it sounds like the person who's uh, criticizing Slutter the Lake's critique is um, talking about basic human quandaries, right? Like, what does it mean to be in the world and that kind of thing? You know, how, yes. How do we orient our, ourselves and that sort of stuff? So one of the contributions that Slutter the Lake makes is overcoming the concept of the network. He says that the metaphor of a network is massively overused and is not very philosophically useful. So if we replace the network with foams, because that includes spaces in which we can be, whereas networks are only uh, nodes and the connections between them, they don't, there's no space for us there. So that's one major contribution that he makes. Well, if I'm not part of a network, but, I'm, but I contribute to the air, then... It allows me to at least feel relevant. Yeah, and that, in fact, there's another useful concept that he brings up here, tensegrity, which I had to look up. Tensegrity is the idea of a structure that is held in place by the uh, mutual pressures on and between the parts. So in the 80s, there was a bunch of art structures that were made using tensegritis principles that because the all of the parts lean on each other, so when we apply this to foams, the spheres are held in place because the spheres touch each other and they are pressured on each other. And we should not think of the spheres as of these borders between the spheres inside the foam as not being penetrable, right? Like if you live in an apartment building, you are inside the air of the sphere of your particular apartment, but the fact you share a boundary wall with the apartment nearby so when they argue or fuck or whatever it is the noise comes across and influences your domain so there are all of the spheres inside the foam are all held in place through tensegrity and all kind of influencing each other and all bubbling up against each other and that kind of thing hmm. um, to shift back to uh, commercial analogies you have holistic network or relationship network marketing um, and that would be the, the attempt, from what I understood when I was in school, it may have since evolved since these texts of spheres are out, but um, with Slotterdike. But the, you've got holistic networks. So you're attempting to define what is encapsulated by the spherical analogy and metaphor. You're um, attempting to define it with um, more difficult incomplete metaphors here's a network the network's incomplete so we're going to make it holistic and we're going to include these outside influences and then we're going to tack on uh, it's to do with relationships uh, mm. between them because it's not just about the the nodes it's about the exchanges between the nodes so we've got the network we've got the nodes we've got the traffic between the nodes and then we've got the influence of the environment and the ecos so all of a sudden you're, you're just fracturing into a whole bunch of analogies and metaphors and then slapping them together and trying to make a and including holistic ironically using holistic as a part of it to try and create a holistic system um, whereas it sounds to me and in terms of my ability to use the visual comprehension um, it's as if spheres and foams are utilizing the visual nature of thought more effectively mm. Well, I'm, yeah, I definitely feel like foams is a richer metaphor than network, and in that sense, useful, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I find a lot of my thinking is in pictures. When I was discussing this with my daughter, when we were, cons I was asking her, and I love the, the innocence of a child's mind, uh, to ask her, what is a memory, and how do you record them? And our conclusion was, it's kind of like a comic book, and that we are recording details of an image and the feelings we have of those images and then when we draw upon that memory we're pulling up those images and recreating the feelings to sell like a, an illusion to those feelings obviously illusions probably beyond her um, that i'm summarizing here paraphrasing yep. and then from that we recreate the story and then we put the story back into words and that she claims she's not storing her memories in words Mm. and they're just part of how she patterns and so I, it's a good opportunity for me to leave her into or head into talking about the different hemispheres of the brain and what mm. functions they perform but certainly I like the idea of being able to imagine or think 
in images. And I know that a lot of psychotherapy and psychological support techniques uh, use what's a right brain therapy, where you may, if somebody has a problem that they can't seem to figure out, you're in, in pain in their body, for example, and you ask, well, if you go to that part of your body, uh, what does it feel like? Do you get a? Do you get allow yourself not to think in words, but just allow yourself to see it, um, and imagine it? Is it a, a shape, or is it a color? Is it dense, or is it soft? Is it moving? Is it still? And some people say, oh, it's like a, it's like a brown blanket hanging over my shoulder. Maybe they got like a stiff neck or something, or and there's an emotional link to it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then there's a hypnotic technique where you hand the individual, you say, open your hands, and I'll um, give you this precious gift which is the perfect gift for dealing with that and when they're in that hypnotic state then they imagine the perfect gift to resolve it and so for them they might be oh it's a uh, it's a four-leaf clover and well what do you do with the four-leaf clover i hold it against my heart and then maybe they then uh, all of a sudden you go well how does your shoulder feel now oh it feels different it's as if there is uh, an image well the truth is there is it's not just as if um, there's an image thought process that is able to interpret a much richer picture tells a thousand words they can spend the rest of the session in therapy describing what that four-leaf clover meant to them and coming to conclusions about why it worked and what was relevant about it but the fact is that four-leaf clover was there instantly and it carried with it such a depth of meaning and significance that it created a a physiological and psychospiritual solution and it was utilizing the image mind, that they say the right brain, as opposed to the logic of the left. Mm. And I think that using an apt metaphor or analogy system, like spheres and foams, uh, is a very impressive way to set about addressing and improving the human capacity to address the problems of the world. Mm. Yeah, I think it's extremely useful. I mean, I definitely get the hunch that my memories are an embodied uh, physical, emotional experience that the rational mind reconstructs from that information, you know, the kind of more banal parts of, of what a memory is. Right. Should we wrap up the session? How are we at for time? Um, what are we at? An hour and seven? Yeah, our session's probably good for a first okay. first episode. Yep, nice one. Okay, talk to you later, W. Nice one, V.